Father, I want to thank you for the power of your truth. Your truth breaks chains. Your truth sets prisoners free. Your truth is powerful. It's living. It's active. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerns the thoughts and intents of our heart. And I ask God that you would you would challenge us today. And I pray, Father, that as we would, by your grace, have the necessary time to go through that last part, walking in the Spirit, would you give us insight uh, and, and keys and truths that we would be able to do this, that we would not gratify or gratify the, the cravings of the, the flesh. This is our heart's desire, God. We want to walk closely with you. And I believe your, your scripture here tonight is going to empower us with truth to be able to do that. So would you help us, Lord, as we understand your word and apply it to our lives in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Um, how many of you ever had an experience in which you had, maybe even have a verse memorized when you were a kid, but when you got older, suddenly it just, your, it, it, your eyes were suddenly open, you, you got it, you understood, you had one of those aha moments or light bulb moments in which, whoa, that is awesome, that is powerful, wow. Now, for me, that happened at my conversion with regard to um, John 3.16, uh, Ephesians 2.8 and 9. And you, when you're a kid, you kind of just read, the, yeah, 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 you kind of listen to these things, the gospel, Jesus, yeah, I know he died on the cross. And then these truths suddenly came to life for me, or I guess I came to life, but these truths impacted and changed me. Um, maybe for some of us, we have a view of ourselves that is uh, down in the dirt. It is the wretched man syndrome. And I want to challenge that tonight. This passage that we're going to look at, I am going to confess to you, is a very difficult passage to understand. I do not want you, please do not misunderstand my passion for what I'm teaching tonight for pride. I do not assume that John Calvin and Martin Luther and the likes were just absolutely wrong. And, but I am going to teach it as I best know, but understanding that I could be mistaken. All right? Some godly men have held a very different position than myself. However, having said that, let me communicate to you that I personally believe that when we understand this passage, in which I will call it the right way, <laughs> that we, <laughs> yeah, that, that it's, it's going to really open our eyes to who we are in Christ. And this, we could just launch into a whole study about what it means to be in Christ and the blessings and the authority and the power that we have in Christ, the victorious life that we have available to us because we are in Christ. Um, but we can't do that. We don't have time. So we're going to kind of go through this passage and by God's grace have enough time to touch on the implications and the applications, especially walking in the spirit and how we can do that. Um, and I, I truly believe that this has, this has the potential to really give us an understanding of scripture that can set us free. Okay. All right, I, I am not going to have time to read through this passage. And so I am, I'm going to trust... Well, you know what? Okay, I, I'm going to change my mind on that because I realized half of you raised your hand and half didn't. And so I, I think I am going to... 
read this passage. I'm going to be reading it from the NIV. But here's what I'm going to say. Um, I've got quarter of, and I'm probably going to go till 9 o'clock or maybe a little bit after. Okay, And I'm just going to ask for grace in this. I know we have little ones, and some of us have to get up really early. But if you could bear with us, I'm, I'm believing that God is going to, to really encourage us with this study tonight. Paul continues on here in chapter 7, verse 14, by saying, um, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do not, excuse me, for what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Let me pause here for a moment. The word law is used in two different ways in this passage, and if you're not aware of that, it can become very confusing. The word law, when it's referring to God's law, is the Mosaic law. The other ways in which he uses like the, the, the law of sin and death, he is talking about principle. As in laws of physics. Those are principles. Those are truths. Okay, And that's how he uses this word law. But he purposely doesn't use a different word. He uses the word law because he's wanting to see this. The law of God and these laws falling on the same plane, if you will. But they can be opposing to one another. Okay? All right. Um, But I find this law or this principle at work. When I want to do good... Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in my members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, But in the sinful nature, that is the flesh, a slave to the law of sin. There are those who uh, truly believe that this is a passage that would clearly refer to Paul as a believer. They have five, I'm going to just basically list five reasons. Um, The first one is the fact that Paul uses the present tense. Um, Hang on one second. Zach, what was it that I needed to share with everybody at the very beginning? Yes, thank you. I need, I need you to hold questions until the very end, okay? And we may find that uh, you've got a lot of questions. So if you would, just on the side here, the, the margin, just write your questions down, okay? Now, if, if I misspoke, please correct me because that can happen. I hope I don't. But if you have questions, just jot them down in the margin there, and I'd like to entertain those questions at the end. Okay, so that way there's going to be a flow here, um, and uh, I think that's going to end up allowing things to go smoother, okay? So the first reason is that they, 
they would say that Paul uses the present tense in the first several ver- in the verses prior to that, verses seven to thirteen. Paul uses the past tense to refer to himself, and now he's using the present tense. So they would say clearly he's indicating that it refers to him presently. Romans was written in about fifty-seven, fifty-eight or so A.D. Um, so just keep that in mind. Present tense of when Paul was writing. Number two, an unregenerate person cannot desire, which is the word thelo, to do good. Um, when I want to do good, when I desire to do good, and in verse 18, the, uh, the, the desire to do good there, they would say that's impossible for an unregenerated person to do that. Number four, excuse me, number three, an unregenerated person cannot delight in God's law. We see that in, excuse me, verse 20, 22. For my being, I delight in God's law. They would say that's impossible for a non-Christian to do that. Number four, slave to God's law is a good thing and contrasted with slave to the law of sin, which is a bad thing. Now, we're going to get to all of these that's why I'm just kind of reading through them so you know, because when we get to the 12 reasons Paul should be viewed here as an unbeliever, we're going to touch on them. And then lastly, the context, they say, best suits this particular view, that Paul is a Christian. That is, in verses 7 to 14, he, is, he views himself as the unbeliever, and it uses past tense. Verses 14 to 25, he is seeing himself as a believer, Uh, that on occasion wrestles with sin, not walking in the Spirit. And then as we segue into chapter 8, those who fully walk in the Spirit will be able to walk in freedom. I'm going to challenge that view tonight, okay? So, again, please do not mistake the boldness and the emphasis and the passion with which I'm teaching these things as if I do not consider their views worthwhile to even consider, okay? But I I, I see such implications of this passage. So, number one, I want us to look at the, the, under the 12 reasons we should view Paul as an an unbeliever here. We need to consider the thrust of this first argument, that Paul is using the, the present tense, and he uses the present tense throughout this passage. So what's going on if he just... If he was using the past tense in the prior verses, why does he switch to the present tense? And we need to be able to answer that question. If Paul is viewing himself here as an unbeliever, then why does he use the present tense? The first thing that we need to realize is Paul uses the present tense in other places. And I'm just sharing one scripture here with you, and that would be in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. And if you were to go there, again, we're going to be going to some passages, but if you could, keep your finger in Romans 7. But turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to see how Paul uses the present, excuse me, how Paul uses the present tense on this occasion. In verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Paul wrote 1 Timothy chapter 1, around 63-65 AD. And if we understand Paul saying that he is presently considering himself the worst, the worst of sinners, then we have a problem here with Paul's process of sanctification. Now we know that he's not, even though he's using the present tense, he's really referring to himself before he came to Christ because of the next verse. He says, verse 16, but... 
for that very reason, I was shown mercy. So he was the worst of sinners, and God showed him, past tense, can someone hand these gentlemen the uh, packet, packets of the, that we passed out? Yeah, awesome, right. thank you. Um, so he, God showed him mercy, that's past tense, but then why does Paul use the present tense? And my best guess is that he, he, he is trying to humbly identify with this, with the fact that he was held guilty and he doesn't want to just say, I was the worst of sinners, as if I'm not a sinner anymore. He wants to place the emphasis on Christ's mercy, because only as he stands there, or sits there writing, uh, that day, would he, and according to God's mercy, would he ever be able to stand before God? Innocent. Innocent. Justified. Okay? And so he chooses to use the present tense. I want you to turn to Romans 3.9. So we see there that in 1 Timothy 1 that Paul does use the present tense to refer to it to some to his past. So this is not uncommon or or I should say it's Paul has done it before. There are other passages but that one will suffice. As we look at chapter 3 verse 9, I want us to see something here. It says, "What shall we conclude?" Are we any better? Now, I'm not going to get into the context here, so forgive me. We have looked at this verse before. He says, not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Does that mean that Christians are under sin? Okay. I want to challenge you there. He is only saying that the lost are under sin. So with regard to Christians, we have to understand this as a principle that does not apply to Paul. And Paul is not under sin anymore. Actually, um, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold off on that for just a moment. Uh, I was going to move on to what it means to be under sin. The idea, though, here is that Paul is giving a principle and he's using the present tense to do that. So I'd submit to you that as we look at Romans 7, that's exactly what Paul is doing. Though he's using himself as an example, he is not saying that it is he, this is his personal testimony at the present time. And we're going to find out right now why that's the case. Instead, he uses the present tense to teach a principle that he himself, when he was under the law and under sin, that consequently he was in bondage to that sin, a prisoner, a slave to it, as he says later. And so he's teaching that using the present tense to share, to use himself as an example to teach a principle. Because he's not the only one that was unspiritual, sold under sin. Okay? And, and this, the whole nine yards here. Do you understand that then? Okay? Paul says, I am unspiritual. Now, this is a term that can be applied to Christians. He applies it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3.1. He says that you are unspiritual, infants in Christ. Now, what this word unspiritual means is you are fleshly. In other words, when I look at you, you look like the world. 
you, you're acting like the world. Here's the world over here, and here's you over here, and wow, you really look a lot alike. You are you you look worldly, and you are immature. You are infants in Christ. So I'm not going to say that this can't apply to Christians, but it only applies to infants in Christ. Not just infants in Christ, but immature. Because sometimes an infant in Christ can simply mean someone who just came to Christ. Uh, they're passionate for the Lord. They're growing, they're, but they're they're just not mature yet. But this type of immaturity in Christ, this infancy in Christ, is worldly. You you look like the world. Now here's my challenge: If Paul is writing and testifying that this is him, is Paul really saying that he is unspiritual? He rebuked. Now he wrote this about Romans about three years after he wrote 1 Corinthians. So after rebuking the Corinthians for being unspiritual, is he now trying to tell us that he too is unspiritual? We have to be careful. Is there an allowance to insert the word sometimes? I am sometimes unspiritual. Is that what he's trying to say? Is there anywhere in this passage in which Paul is implying that this is sometimes the case? I'm not thinking so. And, and I, in all fairness, if we were to go through this, and I'm going to leave this decision up to you, I don't think you can insert that word sometimes. That's not his intention. He is unspiritual. As a result, some who hold that this is Paul as a believer refer would say that Paul is referring to himself when he first came to Christ as an immature believer in Christ. I have a problem with that. If you were to look at Paul's testimony in Acts 9, is that really Paul, what Paul would say of himself? He immediately started proclaiming Christ. He was bold, willing to lay his life down. I'm not quite so sure that there was ever a time in Paul's life in which he looked like the world. Sarkinos, fleshly. So I, I, I'm going I'm to leave that up to you. We could dig into this more, but I don't think Paul ever was fleshly or the NIV translates it, unspiritual. The next phrase that he gets into is sold as a slave to sin. Now, I have it written on your notes here, sold under sin. That's the literal translation, sold under sin. What does the word sold imply to you? Ownership. Okay, ownership. Uh, sold when it's applied to goods that you're selling clearly implies an exchange of ownership. Okay, can it imply anything else? Control value. Uh, it, it could, I suppose, but this it, in, unless you sell it for less. Okay, when it's applied to people, how, when you sell someone. That's slavery. You're selling them into servitude. And, and so this word, though it's not used for people very often in the New Testament, um, it would certainly imply slavery. And so that's why the NIV says sold as a slave. The NASB does the same thing. But literally, it's just the word sold, and it's under sin. Now here's my question before we get into the phrase under sin. If he is sold, he is telling us that ownership of him has been changed. The only ownership that I'm aware of, and he actually talks about it in the early part of this chapter, 
is that we were under sin, we were owned, if you will, by the enemy, but there, and he, we were a part of the kingdom or the dominion, the authority of darkness, but then Christ bought us, and that's the exchange of ownership that we know of. We are never told in the New Testament that a Christian can be sold, can be bought by the enemy, unless we're using it metaphorically. And Paul is, I do not believe Paul is trying to express himself metaphorically here uh, in that way. He is trying to teach us theological truth here, and he's using this word sold, and that tells us that there was, he is expressing that his ownership exchanged hands, if you will, or he was owned by another. And that other is sin. Okay? Let's now look at what this phrase under sin means. Because we have the phrase under law. We have the phrase under grace. Both of those in Romans 6. We have And under law is found throughout Romans. We have the phrase under sin in Romans 3, 9 that we just read. And so I think it would help us out a bit if we were to go back to that, that verse, Romans 3, 9. And let's find out what does it mean to be under sin. Does it just simply mean to be influenced by sin? Which is, the, which is what the, the, those who believe this is Paul as a believer would hold to. It's just sin's influence. And I'm going to tell us, Paul already tells us what it means with this word under. It's the Greek word hupa. We transliterate it hypo, like hypodermic, under the skin, hypodermic needle. This is under, not necessarily positionally, like under the skin, but it can, it can also mean under the authority and the power. Now, you can test this. You can do a little word study how this Greek word hupal is used in this way in the book of Romans. And I, I can assure you that he implies that it means under the power, the rule, and the authority of. Okay? And so just do those little word studies under sin, under law, under grace, and you'll find this to be the case. Well, let's go to Romans 3.9 and let's see if this holds up. Romans 3.9 says that both Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. If you look at verse 10, it says, as it is written, and then he proceeds to quote numerous Old Testament passages that explain something to us. But before I talk about what they explain, what does the word, as it is written, why does Paul say that? What is he trying to do with what follows? Do you understand my question? Zach? Just trying to illustrate what he's been saying by using... Okay. Use maybe a stronger word than illustrate, uh, if you don't mind. Like build a, what's it called? Um, a, a case, like, maybe? Yeah, like a substantiate. Substantiate. Pro- Let me prove my point to you, as it is written. I'm going to use scripture now to prove to you from God's authoritative word that all are under sin. That is, all unbelievers are under sin. So what follows then highlights... Two of those words, all, well, three, all and what it means to be under sin. Do you see this? If you were to read through all of these, and we already did when we looked at original sin and the bondage of the will, what we found was that all of them, every unbeliever is in bondage to sin, okay? And to the point where they could not do 
what is good. Now, Paul's point here is to show us from the Old Testament to prove his point that all, and there, are, there is no exception, but he also, he doesn't just say that all have sinned, but he shows us the extent of this sin. Under sin means this right here. There is no one righteous. That's what under sin means. There is no one who understands. That's what under sin means. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All have become together, uh, have together become worthless or unprofitable. There is no one who does good, not even one. So you can see the all, but I think you can see the extent of this depravity. Correct? That's what it means to be under sin. Under the power and the authority. Not just under the influence. Okay? Sin controls. That's what under sin means. Okay? All right. Um, in Galatians uh, 3.22, by the way, Galatians and Romans, uh, both of them talk quite a bit about what it means to be under law, what it means to be under sin, and what it means to be able to walk in the Spirit. Um, Galatians is only five chapters, Romans is, tw- is 16, so Romans is obviously going to be elaborating on some of these issues more. But Galatians 3.22... Um, tells us that scripture declares that the whole world is literally, it says, under sin. Now, my NIV says a prisoner of sin, but all are under sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. We were held prisoners by the law. We'll get into that later. Okay, so under sin under the influence and the power. Now, if we were to look through Romans 6, we would find, you can turn to Romans 6, we would find that Paul, in this chapter, highlights this bondage of sin. That is, being under sin. And he makes this connection of being under sin and under law that we're going to need to look at much closer a little bit better because he does that again in this passage of Romans 7. But in Romans 6, look at verse 6, for example. He says that, um, skipping through, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's not like a challenge, don't. It's that we have been... Let me read the whole verse, okay? Okay. All right, for we know that our old self, or our old man, was crucified with him, with Christ, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. This is a theological truth. The body of sin has been done away with, and because it's been crucified with Christ, and we are no longer slaves to sin. All right, in verse 18... He says, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Do you see the transition of ownership there? You were a slave of sin, now you're a slave of righteousness. We've been bought with the precious blood of Christ. We're no longer slaves of sin. We are now slaves of righteousness. 
And my question is, if this is Paul as a believer, why does he characterize himself as a believer as being sold, number one, and number two, to be sold under sin? He's saying that sin controls him, it owns him, it... um, it exercises power and authority over him. Now, he gets into it even more later that we're going to look at, but I, I'm going to submit to you that the Christian is not a slave to sin anymore. Now, let me just say this. We can say, and, and, and I'll just, someone who has an anger problem, you are, in, you are a slave to your anger. You're in bondage to your anger. We can use that terminology. And, and I think we understand what we're saying. You are under the strong influence of. But if we were to cross our T's and dot our I's theologically, we would not say that because we cannot be enslaved to sin like that again. We cannot be. It is an impossibility. Now, that does not mean that sin cannot influence us, which would be the opposing view that that's really what Paul is trying to say. But Paul, in this discourse in Romans, he's theologically crossing his T's, dotting his I's, he's choosing his words carefully, and he is not going to build an argument and just throw terms out and contradict himself what he has said in chapter 3, chapter 6. He's not going to do that. And, and he's not going to switch terminology on us. Now, when I say that someone is in bondage and they're a Christian, what I mean is they are caught in a sin. Galatians 6.1, you who are spiritual, he says, if you see someone who is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, to restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. But it doesn't say someone who is, has become a slave again to sin. Uh, this begins this, this idea, really, of who we are in Christ. Do you not realize that the term sinner is never used by Paul to refer to a Christian, ever? He, it, it, only re, it only refers to an unbeliever, and he uses, what term does he use now instead of sinner to describe the Christian? Saint, hagios, a holy one. You are not one who is characterized by sin and therefore a sinner. You are one who is characterized by holiness and therefore you are a saint. Not, not one single time in his writings does he accidentally or otherwise call a, a believer a sinner. He doesn't do that. So I'm, I'm getting this feeling that Paul is trying to paint this picture for us as we... as a. I would suggest when we hit Romans 8 and that Romans 9, he is still an unbeliever, but he is not trying, he is, he's not describing the believer here as someone who's sold under sin because that is a theological impossibility that he's already told us in chapters 3 and 6. Um, and especially not Paul as a mature believer. So I want I to just challenge us Paul is not simply using these strong terms to describe a mere influence of sin, but the control of sin. All right. Well, let's move on. He says, I cannot 
carry it out. Right there in verse 18. The good that I want to do, I cannot carry it out. Literally, and, and I'm going to read the whole verse to you. He says, I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Literally translated, that is, the desire for good is in me, but the working of the good is not. The working of the good, the ability to do the good is not in me. Now, let's be careful here. If we're going to take the other view that Paul is a Christian here, we would have to say that when he's referring to me, he's referring to his flesh. And that's the sand, to my knowledge, that, that is taken. The problem we have with this, then, is Paul jumps around with I and me constantly. You're not sure if he's talking about the inner man or the mind or the regenerated portion of Paul or the flesh. Because he uses both I and me for both of them. And there's, we are presented with this dichotomy that can get very confusing. And I'm going to suggest to you, let's just clear that up. When Paul says I, he means I. He doesn't try to um, differentiate between the, that regenerated portion of himself and the flesh. Until he says, the doing of the good is not in me, that is in my flesh. Now he's being specific. But when he says me, he's referring to his entire being, me. So in me, in my entire being, there is a desire, there is, the Greek word here is from the verb thelo, which means want, wish, desire, will. The willingness to do the good is there in me. What is not in me, not just my flesh, but in me, as a person, a whole person, the, the, the ability to do it is not there. Now, the common objection is, well, wait a second, this can't be Paul as an unbeliever because it's impossible for a believer to want to do good. And I'm going to ask you, and I am a firm believer in the bondage <coughs> of the will, show me a passage that says that. The passage I read in Romans 3 does not say that. It says that they cannot do good. Not that they can't want to do good. Can I assure you that Martin Luther, before he became a Christian, truly wanted to do good, but he was so guilt-ridden because he couldn't do it. He constantly failed. And the condemnation weighed so heavily on his shoulders it was literally driving him insane. But he had... He had tremendous desire to want to do good. He just couldn't do it. See, that's the bondage of the will. It's not that we can't want to do good. It's that though we may want to, we can't. We can't truly do good and please God. God loves goodness. God loves righteousness. And he's pleased with it. But the unbeliever cannot do good and please God. It is always tainted with sin. All right? And there is this ball and chain to sin that the unbeliever cannot get free from. That's the bondage of the will. All right? So the desiring is there, but the doing is not there. 
All right. We, when we looked at Romans 3, uh, when we looked at original sin, we looked at this phrase, there is no one who seeks God. And the question I pose to you is, can unbelievers seek God? Now, I'm using English words here. We discovered that the word Paul used here for seek was, you may remember, ek zeteo. Ek zeteo. It's an intensified form of zeteo, which means seek. So it's intensively or intensely seek. And Paul is saying that the unbeliever cannot exeteo or intensely seek God. All right? He can't do that. But when we looked at Acts 17, what was it, verse 25, 26? He says, why did he, Paul says, is preaching in Athens and he says that, they're, uh, that, the, that <clears throat> God separated man into various nations and uh, chose for them the when and the where they would live. Why? So that men would zeteo, seek God, reach out for him, and perhaps find him. And I'm going to submit to you that he is telling us that the unbeliever can seek God. He can zeteo, but he cannot exeteo. It's because there's still that resistance to God. They're wanting God, but they hate, they still hate God. Now, Paul, well, let me, let me tackle that a little bit later because he, he talks about this idea of delighting in God's law. We're going to Look at that in a moment. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge us that when he says, I cannot carry it out, he is not just simply talking about in my flesh. Why would he even talk about, well, in my flesh I can't carry it out? Everybody knows this. That's inconsequential. Of course the flesh battles against the spirit. We're going to look at that in a few minutes in Galatians 5, the spirit and the flesh warring at each other. And I'm going to suggest it's a, it's a different scenario that's going on there, and we'll see that. But... What's going on here is Paul is saying, not just in my flesh, but in me as a person, I want to do good. I cannot do it. It is impossible for me to do the good. The good is not in me. That's how it reads literally. Okay. The willing is in me. The good is not in me. Or the doing of the good is not in me. As we were to read on in in chapter 7... He says, um, for what I want to do, I do not, I don't do it. The evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. If I, <clears throat> excuse me. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. I would suggest to you, this is clearly Paul being controlled by sin. Not just a mere influence, but this is control. And that's an operative word that he uses, at least this English word control, that he uses in the next chapter. Who controls you? Does the flesh control you or does the spirit? Because Paul says if the flesh controls you, you do not belong to Christ. And I am getting the picture here of sin controlling Paul. Because Paul is unregenerated. Well, let's move on. <clears throat> he says, I delight in the law. The problem that we have with this word delight is that it is the only time that it's used in the New Testament. I'm not aware of it being used in the Septuagint. 
in the, in which would perhaps even be inconsequential. But in the New Testament, this word is used only one time, and it's used here. So we're going to have to use synonyms. And whenever you start turning to synonyms, you start walking on somewhat shaky ground. Okay, what is Paul getting at when he says, I delight in God's law? And I'm, I'm going to say, if you were to look at Acts 22.3 and Romans 10.2, he refers in Acts, he's giving his testimony, and he says that he was a zealot for God's law. Do you, that word zealot comes from the word zealous, or to be zealous, and it means to burn with fire, to burn with passion. Paul, before he came to Christ, was passionate about the law. He loved the law. I, I don't care if he loved the law, but he couldn't fulfill it. That was Paul's problem. So, to delight in the law, let, let's be careful. The, the blessed man of Psalm 1 delights in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. But that doesn't mean that Paul himself, before he came to Christ, couldn't delight in God's law. Number one, that's a different word in Hebrews. It's Hebrew, number one, not three. But you, you, you do get this idea in Psalm 1 that there is this communion and, and love of God's word because it, it does not bring death, but it brings life. Okay, That's the context so I'm going to just challenge you. Don't just quickly jump to Psalm 1 and say, well, see, David says he delights in the law, so only Christians can delight in God's law. I, I'm going to say that that's, that's not a fair argument. It's not. Paul says he was zealous for the law or for God. He even says in Romans 10, 2, that his fellow countrymen who are zealous for the law, they're lost. So you can, you can be zealous for God's law. You can, you can delight in God's law. You can rejoice in God's law. That doesn't mean that you're a believer in Christ. Trust me. When you read through Acts 20, 21, James is talking about Jews who are zealous for the law and they are believers. And, and you almost get this... Well, maybe I shouldn't go there. They were zealous for the law before they came to Christ and they were zealous for the law after they came to Christ. The difference now was whether they had freedom because they're no longer under the law, but now they're under grace. I'm going to get to that in just a moment. So I'm going to suggest to you that we can be zealous for the law and not know Jesus Christ. We can delight in his law. We can like it. We can enjoy reading it. But it can still not change us if Christ Jesus is, is not a part of what we embrace, believe, and give ourselves to. Okay? So... Um, number seven, as we move on here, he says that in his inner being, that would that he uses another phrase, the members uh, within my members or the members of my body. So these are synonyms in my inner being, in my the members of my body. There's two laws at work here. There's the law of God. Because Paul is under the law at this point. He's an unbeliever under the law, under its tyranny. And all it does is bring condemnation. He has talked about that earlier in chapter 7. 
And so he's now saying, but there's another law. Not only does the law that I, that I delight in, but it rules over me because he's still under law, but there's this other law, and it is the law of sin. And it's at work within me too. And so both of these laws are, have tyranny in my life. And the result, if Paul were a Christian, what would the result be? I'm finding victory. It's hard, but I am gaining some freedom. Here's the result. I am a prisoner of the law of sin. Can I ask you, is that a good thing or a bad thing? To be a prisoner of the law of sin. It's a bad thing. Actually, if you were to look over in chapter 8, we find out just how bad it is. Chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a believer. In Christ Jesus. Because, why why is there no condemnation? Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. Paul, because he's in Christ, he's been set free. He's not a prisoner of the law of sin. He's not going to say a few verses early, I'm a prisoner of sin, and then say, uh, or as a Christian, and then say, but I'm also, uh, I've been rescued from the law of sin. That's contradictory. So he is, he is saying that as an unbeliever, he is a prisoner of this, of, in this battle, being under law, because he's really wanting to obey the law, but people, the whole idea is that he can't do it. As a Jew, is he, he can't turn to the law and by obeying it, find righteousness before God. That's what he's trying to say here. He, he goes to the extent, say, if you could in some way do enough good from the law, would you still be able to do it? No, you wouldn't. Number one, he teaches us in verse 13 that all the law did was it highlighted my sin. Then he goes on and he says, but it did more than that. It showed me that I could not even obey the law. I was helpless. The desire was there, but the inability was there. And which one won out? Every single time, the inability. He was a prisoner as a result. What a perfect picture, in my opinion anyway, of Martin Luther and his testimony in his bondage to the law. Because Martin Luther was under law. He tried to do enough good works and penance and, and all of this stuff to try and gain favor with God. He was under law. Maybe not the Mosaic law, but the law of man and good works. And all it did was bring condemnation. And he realized what a pathetic prisoner he was to this, wanting to do the good, but he couldn't. Why? Because of the sin that ruled in his flesh. Um, Galatians 3.22, we've already looked at that, a prisoner of the law of sin. Romans 6.17 and 18, we've looked at that. We're no longer slaves to sin. And in 25, we're going to see that in his flesh, he's a slave to the law of sin. Uh, we're going to touch on that, so I'm not going to do that here. And then we touched on Romans 8 too. Paul has been rescued. He's not a prisoner anymore. He's been rescued from the law of sin. The conclusion then he says, not as a regenerated man 
influenced by sin, but as an unregenerated man trying to do the law because he delights in it, but he can't. And he's a prisoner. What a wretched man I am. And, and this was Martin Luther's conclusion. What a wretched man I am. Who's going to save me from this? I am hopeless. I want to do good and I can't do it. I'm going to go straight to hell. God's going to judge me for all this sin in my life. What a weight of condemnation on his shoulders. And on Paul's. On Paul's. This this term wretched man is used twice in the New Testament. Once here and another time in Revelation 3.17 in which he says to the Laodiceans, you are wretched pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I wish that you would buy from me gold refined in the fire, um, clean clothes to wear, and sad for your eyes. These were unbelievers. They were caught in sin. They were lukewarm. They looked like Christians, but they were empty. They They would be what we call nominal Christians. On the outside only. It's also used as a noun in Romans 3.17 and James 5.1, both of which refer to unbelievers. So who is going to rescue me from this body of death? That's his question. The answer we all know is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ rescues us from this bondage. Um, If you were to look at in chapter 7, verse 11, it says, For sin seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. Man, I thought that by obeying the law, I was going to make it, but sin deceived me. It, it, made, it deceived me. It put a cloud over my mind. I thought that I was good, but then sin revealed just how wretched of a sinner I was. It deceived me. What I thought was going to bring me life by obeying the law brought death because sin... Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment, put me to death. Put me to death. All right. I want to ask this question as we move on. He says that he, in his mind, is a slave to God's law. The literal Greek says, on the one hand, in my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, and on the other hand, I am a slave to the law of sin. I think the mistake that we can make is to say that being a slave to God's law is a good thing. And I want to challenge that. Because he just told us in the early part of chapter 7, it's not a good thing. To be a slave to God's law, which is different than being a slave to his righteousness, by the way. We have been set free from the bondage of the law. Look at early chapter 7. He says there in verse 4, So my brothers, you also died to the... Law. Dying to the law is a good thing. Verse 6. But now, by dying to what once bound us, what once bound us? We have been released from the law. The law bound us. That's not a good thing. We actually served the law. We were bound to it and we served the law, hoping that we might find the righteousness that would be pleasing to God. But instead, it only highlighted more and more and more what a sinner I was. And so he says, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Can I share with you 
This word serve is the Greek word duleo. Excuse me, duluo. Duluo. It is this duluo from the Greek word doulos, slave. I am a slave of Christ, Paul says in the beginning of most, if not all his letters. I'm a slave or a bond servant, a servant. I am a slave of Christ, doulos. Duluo is the verb of that. It is the same verb that's used when he says, I am a, I am a slave to God's law. Now, the NIV just translates it differently. To, it means to serve as a slave. Paul says, he's contrasting this. We died to the law because that's we served the law as a slave, and instead now we're serving as a slave the Spirit of God. So we're doing it in the new way of the Spirit. Or maybe I should say we're, we're serving God, but we're doing it in the new way of the Spirit, not the law, because we're not under law. We're under grace. Being under grace, empowered by grace, we serve as a slave to God in this new way of the Spirit. But we don't do serving as a slave. The law of God is a bad thing. He tells us that in the very beginning here. So, but in my mind, desiring and delighting in God's law, I am I'm 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 a slave to it. That is not a good thing. In my mind, but now in my actions, that too. I am a slave. I'm a slave to my flesh. So I'm a, in my mind, I'm a, on the one hand, I'm a slave to the law, and on the other, I'm a slave to sin. Is there any hope here? That's, he he kind of just sums up what he is saying in this entire verses 14 to 24 in this last verse. This is my predicament. This is what Jesus needs to rescue me from. And I, I, I want us to, to now look at the context. Because as we come to chapter 8, this is the beauty of chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, Paul's bringing a conclusion now. He's not bringing a however, he's bringing a conclusion, therefore. This chapter 8, verse 1, therefore, it marks a separation from what precedes. Is it a separation from him as an immature believer or when he is sometimes caught up in sin, but now he's not in chapter 8? I don't see that flying. I don't see that working in Paul's context here. Therefore, now there is no condemnation. Look at this. Here I was, in a, as, as all those under law are, here I was in bondage, in serving God's law, wanting to do it, but I could not do it. What incredible frustration. I was, in, I was slave to the law. I was slave to my own sin. I, I, I had no hope. Regularly, I bore the weight of condemnation. Therefore, now, in Christ, chapter 8, verse 1, now, however, now that I'm in Christ, i.e., chapter 7, when I wasn't in Christ, but now in Christ, guess what? There's no condemnation. Amen. I am freed from that condemnation because you are a prisoner is who is condemned, and I'm not a prisoner anymore. I'm not condemned. And so he says, 
Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because... And I'm going to sum it up because I've already read it. Because I've been set free. I am not a prisoner. Only prisoners are condemned. They're the condemned criminals. Only they are, but not many. Because now, in Christ, I'm set free. And so, I, I'm going to encourage you to, to look at, at this next page here. We'll come back to implications. Look at this next page. And I'm going to give you the context in which I see it. To do that, let me go back to chapter 7, verses 4, 5, and 6. Because as you see this laid out, <clears throat> I have three sections. Verse, chapter 7, verses 7 to 13, is Paul <coughs> under law. Chapter 7, verses 14 to 25, that we just looked at, that is Paul under sin. Trying to obey the law, but he can't. And that's the dilemma. That's why he says, what a wretched man I am, bearing under this condemnation. Chapter 8, he is now under Christ. Specifically, the word he uses is in Christ. But being in Christ means that you are under, that is the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. That's why he is separate. That's why he is not a slave ever again. He has a new master. He has new authority in Christ. We're going to get to in a moment. All right, so if verse 4 of chapter 7. He says, So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. We have been rescued from the law. Not that we shouldn't obey the moral law. That's not what he's talking about here. I'm no longer compelled to obey the law and find my righteousness and good standing before God by it. That weight is no longer there. I've been freed from that. It was a slave master to me. But so this is, I am not teaching antinomianism, which means against the law. Okay? Antinomianism. That, that's a bit, antinomianism, anomianism. Yeah. But many people do believe, just take the Mosaic law and throw it out. Well, hang on a second. No, 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 no. There's richness even in the ceremonial as it's fulfilled in Christ and a lot we can learn from it. We don't observe it, but the moral law stands. The moral law stands. We don't throw that out. Antinomianism says, it's not in the New Testament, throw it out. I'm not suggesting that. But to be under law me, is a bad thing. You were under law, now you are under grace. That is what Romans 6 teaches. So, where ownership has been trans has been we were owned and under the power and authority of the law and our ownership was transferred now to Jesus Christ from the law to Jesus Christ all right and so this is what he is getting at to be under law which he outlines in chapter 7 7 through 13 and in that he elaborates on our need do you see that in the first box he elaborates on our need to be freed from the law by dying to it Though it is good and holy, it revealed our sin and thus killed us. Now we move on to the chapter or the verses we looked, we just looked at. Let's look at verse 5. For when we were controlled by the flesh, which I'm going to submit to you is what Paul is talking about throughout those verses of 14 to 25. For when I was controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in my body so that 
We bore the fruit of life. Woohoo! No, we bore the fruit of death. It killed me. All right? So he highlights the impossibility of obeying the law because he's controlled by the flesh. That's exactly what we read in those verses 14 to 25. Okay? So it elaborates on our need. Do you see that in the second box? It elaborates on our need to be rescued from the control of sin operating through the flesh that renders us powerless to obey the law. And I would add, heaping condemnation upon us. And then as we get to chapter 8, I've already read the verse 2, but verse 6 again. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we, were ne- we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, which is Paul's emphasis. Not controlled by the flesh, but controlled by the Spirit, which is what chapter 8 is about. Controlled. So that we serve. We are now slaves to serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. Okay? So, chapter 8 elaborates on living according to the Spirit, freed from the law, and the control of sin operating through the flesh. Not the influence. The, the Sin can influence us, but it cannot control us. And so what I want to do is I want to conclude with the implications then of what we're even talking about. Okay, so what? So, you know, is it a big deal about whether sin can influence us and whether sin controls us? Whether we're sold under sin? I mean, big deal. So let's just kind of... Tone that down a bit and trans, translate it or interpret it as Paul meaning we're just simply influenced by sin. Though that would go against his definition of what it means to be sold and what it means to be under sin. So it's just influencing us. Well, this Paul, Paul tells us, he, he's clear, this is not just an influence, verses 14 to 25. This is control. If we are going to be willing to adopt this view that we are controlled by sin. We are therefore a prisoner. And Paul just told us in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, if that's the case, then we should still be under condemnation. But it's not the case. I'm not a prisoner. I've been rescued. I am now in Christ, and there's no condemnation. So when I sin, sin may influence me, which is how Paul talks about the flesh and the spirit, how the flesh influences them in Galatians 5. We'll look at that in a moment. It's an influence there, and we're going to see that it's very different in how the Greek is read in, as opposed to Romans 7. But here, in Christ, I am free, and there's no condemnation. And I'm just going to suggest to you, if you feel the weight of condemnation for your sin... You need to to say, Jesus, thank you for not just paying for my sins, but rescuing me from my sins. I am no longer a convicted criminal. I am not a prisoner. And right now, caught up in this sin, I am walking out of this prison cell. That should be the conclusion that we come to. If we feel as if we're in a prison cell, it is not because we're in bondage, but we now have the authority to rebuke the enemy in, apart from Christ. We have no authority like that. Remember, what did the Sanhedrin say to, to Peter? By what name and uh, by what power and name 
did you heal this man? So they realized Peter did this, but it was not by Paul's ability. It was in the power and the name or the authority of Jesus Christ. As believers, we are we speak in the name of Jesus. We speak in the authority of Jesus Christ. We can rebuke the devourer and he must flee. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. That word resist is not a passive word. It's oppose him. Go toe-to-toe with him. Put on the full armor of God. Don't, don't think that you're a defeated you're, you're the defeated one. You stumbled into sin. The righteous man stumbles seven times, but gets up. Get up on your feet. Take the authority that you have in Christ. You are not a prisoner. Just like General Wainwright, even after the war, he may have thought he was a prisoner, but legally, he was not a prisoner. And, and that meant everything to him. Everything to him. Because before he had that authority meaning he is now, by authority, not a prisoner. Before he was a prisoner, he couldn't go into the commandant's office. I mean, he couldn't couldn't even go into the commandant's office to demand anything, otherwise he'd probably be executed or flogged just that short of death because he was a prisoner. But legally, he is not a prisoner. So what did he do? He marched into the commandant's office and he demanded that the commandant surrender to him. And guess what happened? The commandant surrendered. Why? Because he had no legal right, no authority. Because General Wainwright was not a prisoner anymore. He may have thought for several months he was, but he wasn't. Legally, he wasn't. And when he realized that he wasn't, here's the power of understanding that we are no longer slaves to sin, no longer prisoners of the law of sin. We can march out of the prisoner cell by the authority of Jesus Christ. Now, I say march out of the prisoner cell that way because we can think that we are in this bondage and we're, we are struggling with the influence of sin but it has to do with legal standing it has to do with our authority now in Christ because there's no condemnation for those who are prisoners I'm not a prisoner of the law of sin anymore and so I'm going to walk out of this prison cell by the authority that Jesus Christ has given me because why I am in Christ now I am in Christ so we're free, we're not a prisoner. Consequently, as I've shared, we can exercise authority in Christ. The enslaver, Satan, must flee. He has no option here. Now, I'm not saying that's going to be an easy battle. Stand your ground, wield your sword, pull out the word of God, cry out unto him. Um, sometimes temptations are absolutely intense. Sometimes we can be filled with anger and we just want to hurt somebody or say something that's going to really you know, verbally hurt them. And we can just, we can wrestle with this anger. And with that moment, we've got to cry out to God, rescue me from this. Pull, pull me out. Because I, I can stand in the authority of Jesus Christ. Help me do that right now. Are you a prisoner of sin? Legally, you are not. So stand on your feet with the authority of Jesus Christ and walk out of the prison cell, if I can use that metaphor. All right? But technically, again, you're not in a prison cell. Okay. You're not a prisoner. We can feel that way. We can think that way. But legal standing means everything. Walking in the Spirit, we maintain our distance. And this is the way I'm going to word it. If you want to word it differently, that's fine. By walking in the Spirit, we maintain our distance from the influence of the flesh. And so I want to conclude with Romans 5. I know we're getting a lot 
of stuff here, and, and you're probably, I, I see many of you just filling up the page and writing a lot. I, I hope as you're writing, you're able to follow this and let the Spirit of God minister to you. And if you feel as if you are in bondage, please understand, you may be caught in a sin, the devil may have gained a foothold, but that is as far as he can go. He is not going to get you in bondage as he did before, but you can sit in your prison cell every single day. And you're going to see the four walls of that slimy prison cell. Or you can choose to stand up in the authority of Christ and walk out. You have, For this reason, you have been set free to walk in freedom. You've been free to walk in freedom. So stop sitting in the prison cell. You're free. Walk in it. That's what Galatians 5.1 is talking to us about. You're free. Walk in it. All right, Galatians 5, then he says, So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want to do. Because of the, the influence of the of the Spirit, I am going to sin. I'm going to do that. It's not guaranteed, but I am going to do that. I don't want to ever say I'm guaranteed to sin. But there is a conflict within me. He does not say that you cannot do good. He doesn't say that. That's the difference between this passage and Romans 7. He just says, I do not do it. I don't do it on a right, I don't do it continuously. Okay? I do not do present continuous action. Why? Because there are times in which I sin. That's the influence of sin. That's not the slavery and the captivity and the bondage and the, the prison of sin that we learned about in Romans 7. This is different. This is the influence of sin. And he says this, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Okay? You're not under law. You're not under its bondage. You are now under Christ. And as a result of that, you can walk, Romans 8, you can walk in the power of the Spirit. Now, if you had a chance to read through Romans 8, 1 through 17, that's what you're going to see. Walking in the Spirit. Not, not in bondage to the flesh, not controlled by the flesh, but controlled by the Spirit. Okay? So how do we do this? How do we stop this influence of sin that rages in me? And he says this. He says, the acts of the flesh are, and he lists a number of sins. He says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So Paul uses this idea of four different verbs with this, word, with this concept of the Spirit. Live by the Spirit, which literally is walking by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit, which is verse 18. Live by the Spirit, which is zao. Many of you have heard of the group Zoe Girls or Zoe. That's life 
Okay, that's what the name of that group means. Life, zoe, is the noun. Zao is the verb, and that's what he's using here. Live, gain life in the spirit. Live daily lives. And, but it is different than live by the spirit, which literally is um, peripipto, which is walk, walk about by the spirit. And then fourthly, keep in step with the spirit. Basically, he is saying this. That the Spirit leads the way for us. We need to keep in step with the Spirit. We need to do as the Spirit does. What is it? Romans 13, the very last verse. He says, Overcome, don't become, don't become over, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good good by by doing the good and allowing our minds to be focused on and consumed in the good and and in in philippians 4 it says set your mind on things above um and and uh, he says think about these things things that are true and excellent and praiseworthy um whatever you've seen in me put into practice okay so it, for paul it's very important the mind is very important as we think about the things of the Spirit. We are going to walk that out. And I just encourage you that the more that we're in the Word and we delight in the Word and med- meditate on the Word and drink it deeply and allow our roots to go down by those streams of water, but the more we're in prayer and the more we're engaging in um, in worship, that that empowers us and it sets our mind on things above. And it enables us to keep our focus on the Spirit. So when the Spirit is, you know, left, right, left, right, that's what we're doing. We are keeping in step with the Spirit. But when our focus turns away and our heart starts getting lured, we're going to start feeding the flesh. Sin once, sin twice, and we're going to start down that path of influence. And we need to stand in the authority of Christ. We need to seek Christ. We need to be filled with Christ. We need to allow our minds to be captured by Christ constantly. And so walking in the Spirit is very intentional. It doesn't happen accidentally. It is not found in the doing as much as it is found in the surrendering. Okay. Please understand, when our heart, though, is surrendered, there is the doing. There is the fruit of the Spirit. And it's the more that I surrender, the more that I do and, and serve God, and therefore the more that I long for Him and am more fully surrendered to Him, it's, it's, it's a cycle. But the cycle can go the other way. And that's the battle that we rage with. The, the flesh can get our eyes off it. We can start engaging in sinful acts. And it starts feeding us more and more and more. Feed the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Long for the things of the Spirit. Let the things of the Spirit consume us. The more that we're meditating on Christ, the more that our hearts are surrendered to Him, the more that when we're engaged in this battle, we say, Jesus, help me. You be my strength right now. I need you. And we're surrendered to him and submitted to him. 
then rebuke the devourer and he must flee. Okay? So here are the simple truths. There is, there is no just like awesome formula, you know, A plus B plus C plus D and voila, the victorious Christian life. It is all about surrender. Because it's only as we're surrendered do we keep in step with the Spirit and produce these fruits which captures our heart even more so that we're more surrendered and we produce more fruit. Okay? A week without prayer makes one week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you got that, right? Okay. A week without the Word makes one week. Any questions at this point? Any questions? And, and again, let me just say, I could be wrong in my understanding of this passage. I could be. What I fear, though, from my perspective, is if we adopt the view that Paul is a Christian, that we have to be willing to say that we can be prisoners and slaves of sin, that we can be sold under the power and the authority of sin, that we would be able to say of ourselves, I am a wretched man or a wretched woman. And I I don't see these truths standing up in the light of other scriptures. I just don't. What I see is the exact opposite. What I see is that we're not prisoners. What I see is that we walk in the Spirit and we're not controlled by the flesh. That we not only have the willingness, but the ability, the working in us, the good, to do the good. Okay? We have both. And when we fully grasp these truths, that's when we're going to be able to walk more and more in Romans 8. No condemnation, freedom, and the power of the Spirit. And by the way, when he talks about the power of the Spirit later, um, he talks about the Spirit in us crying, Abba, Father, and there is an intimacy that is built there when we're walking in the Spirit. Okay? So I'm sorry, a- any questions? I, Rachel, did you have a question? Yes, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, um, so just to be clear, like, Paul wrote Romans after 1 Corinthians. Okay, yes. But with Romans 7, he wasn't saved, so, like, what okay. exactly time? Like, I mean, obviously, well, like, was Paul saved when he wrote 1 Corinthians? Absolutely, because like, it was inspired of God. So when he wrote 1 Corinthians, he was telling the Corinthians, my point here was he was telling them and rebuking them, you are sarkinos, you are worldly, you look just like the world. Your heart may be regenerated, but you look just like the world. And then he calls them infants in Christ. Okay. Paul never experienced that. We, we don't see that in Paul's lifestyle, whether he, when he first gave his heart to Christ or later. And I don't see it sometimes in here. Sometimes I am unspiritual. No, I am unspiritual. So he's referring to the past then? Yes. Romans 7. Okay. When he wrote Romans 7, he was saved. He was just referring to... Right. Okay. So when he wrote Romans 7 in 57, 58, 59, whatever he did, he was a believer in Jesus Christ. Okay. It's it's just doesn't seem consistent for him in 50, let's say 54 AD, to write to the Corinthians and say, you are worldly. And then three years later, confess, I am worldly. Okay. 
I'm sorry, that, that doesn't make sense to me. Why would you rebuke someone three years earlier for something that you that, that characterizes your life today? Um, I, I, just, I just don't see Paul doing that. And so for that reason, many who believe that Paul, that this is referring to Paul um, as a believer, they say, well, no, it's when he was an immature believer. Okay, then the argument for the present tense doesn't... You would agree with me that the present tense is not used to describe Paul in the present. Okay, and so we would move on, and, and is, he, is he describing himself as an immature believer? But the point here is that in 54 AD... He rebukes the Corinthians for being worldly, and three years later, he's confessing that he too is worldly. Okay. I, I have a problem with that. I, I just don't see the consistency. Okay. Other questions? So this is a certain level of maturity when we no longer worry about the past, present, or future sin. We're just focusing on the spirit. Or we don't focus on the law as previous. Because the Spirit leads us to away from sin and away from the law. I would say that the maturity comes in a thorough grasping of the truth that we're not a prisoner anymore. Because there are plenty of Christians who they feel under the condemnation. And they read Romans 8.1 and they say, I don't get it. What do you mean, there, therefore, now there is no condemnation? I feel condemnation all the time. I feel like I don't measure up. And I would say that person has an immature understanding of what Christ has done for them. And, and they need to, to realize that in Christ, we're not prisoners anymore. You, you may sin, but Christ has freed you from that. Now learn to walk in that freedom. Because this is why you were set free. So, yes, the immature, and, and honestly, I mean, who here doesn't at some point wrestle with a sense of condemnation? But that's the devil whispering in our ear. We might feel guilty for our sin, it leads us to repentance, but that's where it should end. We should not feel guilty after we repent, but we do. Wouldn't that be the testimony of probably every single one of us here? We still wrestle with that. And I'm going to challenge you, when you feel that, just tell the devil. Say, devil, I am, I am a bought son or a bought daughter of Jesus Christ, and there's no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ and he set me free. And I've been totally forgiven. And just start thanking Jesus for what he has done for you. Okay, focus on that truth. That in Christ... There is no condemnation. Christ holds nothing against you. He is not saying, boy, I can just, you just step out of that door, Mike Curtis. Yeah, you think you're a pastor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to knock you down. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God, if I'm caught in a sin, he's going to bring discipline until I repent. But when I repent, his idea is restoration, his idea, there's no condemnation. That's going to come from the enemy, the accuser of the brothers. And we need to turn a deaf ear to that accusation because those accusations aren't presented before the throne. Okay? He's been silenced. He can't bring any accusations. Jesus stands as our advocate. He does not allow it. They don't enter the throne room of God. 
because of the cross. But we listen to them. And I just encourage you, stop hitting play on that recorder, hit stop, and just refuse to live with that condemnation. It's false, it's smoke and mirrors, it is the devil trying to make you feel unworthy, and that sense of unworthiness and condemnation actually pushes you away from being able to walk in the Spirit. It truly does. All right, let me close in prayer. Father, again, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I, I really believe that these are truths that can empower us as followers of Christ to walk in freedom. God, there is, there is so much more here that we could look at. And I just ask you, Father, that the truths that we've been able to highlight, and there's been many, but Father, take those for every single one of us that we personally needed to hear. And you embed those in our heart. You take those few and you just stamp them in bold, indelibly on our heart. Don't let us forget those truths, God. Therefore now, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that you set me free. Thank you that you've called me to serve as a slave in the new way of the Spirit. And what a, an awesome, awesome way that is. That's liberty and freedom. Help every single one of us, God, to learn to keep in marching step with your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.